sir. Good afternoon. Come in. I'm such a naughty, I'm on time. Is that a naughty thing? Yeah. Hey, <laughs> how are you doing? Welcome to Creation Arcade, a podcast where I talk to creative people about what they're doing now and how they got here. This week's guest is a musician, vocalist and writer. It's Martin Mackey. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. So tell us, what's your story? <laughs> I'm only joking. Uh, we'll we'll um, do a little uh, sort of an introduction to what you're doing now, I suppose. So um you're sort of focusing on the musician side of things at the moment, I would say, and being a vocalist and writing songs. Um, kind of, I've kind of stopped doing that. Oh, I, have you? I, okay. I, I um, I did that. That was a project that I did last year and the start of this year, and um, I had planned on putting out an album, mm. and I wrote uh, a pile of songs and recorded them, and I kind of put out an EP. Um, but I've decided that it's too much trouble. And I can't be bothered. And I've got other thing. I've other fish to fry at the minute. Fair enough. So okay. I put the music on the back burner for yeah. a minute. But but you you did uh, release a single last November, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I did. I Magic released, Potion. I released called. a single yeah. Yeah, called Magic Potion. Um, it was. It came around uh, because basically I wanted to. I I put out an album. It's a long story. Four years ago, <laughs> I put out an album uh, called The Popcorn Plot, and it was about. Um, I decided to write about 10 historical characters that I liked. So I wrote a song about each of them. And one of them was Amazing. Claude Debussy. The other one was Isaac Newton. Uh, the music hall star, Mary Lloyd, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Robert Burns, uh, the poet. Okay. And I put that out and it, it, um, you know, it got pretty good response to it. Yeah. Um, RTE asked me to come along and record uh, for them in the arena show and I had to talk about it and I really wasn't expecting that. Um, so it was kind of, not again with all my little projects, everybody needs validation of, at some point. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just think it's another vanity project. So to get on that show and uh, have radio play was a kind of a little bit of a validation for me to, Absolutely, to yeah. realize that I wasn't just, you know, doing it for myself and myself only, which would be fine. But um, it's nice that other people like it. So anyway, um, I, I decided to write a new album called Temperance Songs about mm-hmm. um, alcohol and well, alcohol really about, not really about, well, alcohol as in my friends drinking, me drinking, um, problematic drinking, lock-ins. Yeah. Um, all the sort of... A great c- sentence. Rollovers, lock- lock-ins, early houses and the booze blues. Yeah. All yeah. of that. Thing is, stuff that doesn't really get talked about in Ireland. Um, and we all... Or we just joke about it. Or we just joke like about it's it. Funny, yeah. yeah. And we all refer to um, problems with alcohol. Or not, or maybe just parties, but we all talk about it in, in platitudes and yes, cliche. Like, right? oh God, yeah, like I had nine pints or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fair nobody really Nobody's ta- shocked by this information. Nobody really <laughs> talks about the fact that a few days after it all happens that, you know, lots of people's mental health, something about Irish people, lots of them, maybe it's just human beings rather than Irish people, but lots of people, they cannot deal with um, that level of alcohol drinking because it has a really negative effect on them a few days later mm. and it's not really spoken about because it's, it's not part of our culture to talk about and that. also the way weeks are set up i suppose that you tend to get wrecked as we might call it on mm. a friday saturday well thursday friday saturday yeah. sunday and then be you know hung over sunday monday tuesday wednesday might have a sneaky point mm. and then you're by the time you're sort of really feeling grim about things it's time to go out again yeah yeah and we do. We go out yeah. and we have the pints, and uh, and then of course, you know, there's the the inevitable lock in on a Friday or Saturday if you're with the wrong or right crowd, depending yeah. on your politics. The cool, um, the cool crowd. Yeah, and uh, I, one of the songs is, is Magic Potion. It's basically about it's basically about my own experience sitting in Wheelands um, at uh, stupid o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, half cut, coming out of the pub, and there's 
people like going to work or jogging past you. And yeah. there's something really depressing <laughs> about being pissed in the sunlight yeah, and going yeah. home when other people are going around, you know, and you just, you know, you've, you've walked out of this cavern and you've, you're hitting daylight in reality and it's just weird. Mm. Um, and that's the norm here. So I just thought it'd be nice to explore those sort of themes in an album and call it Temperance Songs. It's um, the first song, that single, that Magic Potion. Um, I got some pretty good players on it. Um, I was, I'm kind of friendly with Conor O'Brien from Villagers. and oh, He's a lovely fellow. He is, he's really nice. And I was in his house one day um, having lunch and he, I mentioned this song and he told me to send him it and then um, I did and then he sent me back this really fantastic bass line which I would never have come up with in a million years because he's like different level musician from me and everybody else that I know. Well, mm. most people. Um, and so then I brought that to... Eleanor, who plays drums for a band called Percolator, she's from Waterford, and I know her through Katie Kim, who I've worked with in the past. Um, anyway, me and Eleanor, I played guitar in a studio, and uh, Eleanor played drums, and we added the bass line, and then I brought it to Kate Ellis, who is the musical director of the Crescent Ensemble, and asked her to put cello on it because she's so good. I mean, she's ridiculously, you know competent musician mm-hmm. and composer uh, so she came up with this we actually recorded that in Laura Sheeran's living room who's another friend of mine so we I took all the elements and brought it back to the studio and um, mixed them and with Connor's bass and Kate's cello and Ellie's drums and my guitar and vocals it worked out really well I think and um, then I got Laura Sheeran to uh, shoot me a video Stop me from the 
you had all record you had recorded everything. Did mm. you always have a video in mind? Do you think that you'd get that far with it, or mm, did I, you sort of roll? I don't know. New video is something new to me. I didn't really think about it. I've always been about you know putting the music out mm-hmm. and then moving on to the next thing. It's always so about the next were you, thing. Were you involved in, in that uh, video production? I was. Um, Laura being the dynamo art artist that she is, she went, right, I'm going to meet you in town and we're going to do this at dawn. And I was like, what? What do you yeah. mean dawn? She went, the light's really good. And I was yeah. like, because I haven't been up in dawn and unless I was, <laughs> as I said, coming home. <laughs> so, so I was like, fine. So I got up at stupid o'clock and mm-hmm. got a cab in the town, met her outside um, Grogan's the perfect place the to perfect start place. Yeah. and uh, we got an actor who's a friend of uh, who's the brother of a guy I used to work with um, and he was there as well so basically the premise of the video was him walking around hanging yeah looking for he's just falling out of Wheelands at 6am and he's going home <laughs> yeah well he's hanging he's looking for um, he's looking for an early house rather mm-hmm. than a so I think it's. I'm not sure he's whether he's coming out of a lock-in or that he's. The idea basically was that he was the guy who was out on the piss. Yeah. Got really hammered, and then probably woke, got thrown out of the party. Maybe. Yeah. Then being woke a bit up. Handsy. Yeah, but then yeah. woke up, fell asleep in the street or something, and then woke up at stupid o'clock, and he's dying. And the only way out of this horror is alcohol. And he's yeah. going around. It's quite grim actually. He's going around looking at empty cans. In it, the it, street it is. And stuff. It's, yeah. I, I mean, I've. I've watched it a few times and it is but it's beautifully shot it is it's gorgeous um, and uh, I love when he lies on the ground with the stag's head oh, mosaic yeah. and all that um, but it is yeah I mean you definitely feel a lot of feelings watching watching that feel, feel yeah. sad I don't think I've ever been that bad but it's kind of like an exaggeration of the way some people are and it's the fact that he's a young handsome dude and he's like yeah. drinking cans in the toilet in a shop. Letting other people pour drink into his mouth or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah, that <laughs> bit. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's Aideen. Um, Aideen, my friend, she's a yoga teacher and she's uh, Aideen Mackin. Her husband is um, Miles O'Reilly, who's a video maker and he's a friend of mine. And we've we've done some work together in the past. Um, and she, really good story actually. She volunteered to be the witch. It's kind of a witch, or you know, it's sort of a witch forward slash, you know, the personification of alcohol yeah. or alcoholism or alcohol abuse and um, so Laura was like right we're going to get um, dry ice and, and Whelan's give us the upstairs for free and we brought all these I went to Miles' house and I grabbed like goats and horrible statues well beautiful statues but in that yeah. realm they looked Creepy kind of enough. horrible and yeah. we put candles everywhere and Laura sent me up to the 50p shop or the pound shop to buy all these candles and then she was like you know producing all this dry ice and then Aideen showed up from her yoga class and she was like what can I do and then Laura took her skirt off put it over her head over Aideen's head did her makeup on put on these mad sort of nails mm. and she went right let's shoot this and 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 Aideen went, I only have a half an hour you know I have to get back and start my other class and I went that's fine Laurel sort of that we were very fast so she shows up does the video Laura shot it and then she went right I have to run so she pulls off her like extension of her nails and uh, goes back to her afternoon class and she's like crazy witch eye makeup and <laughs> and she said sorry everyone I was just shooting a video this afternoon for a friend of mine so uh, and it turned out really well I think um, yeah no it's brilliant it's uh, yeah and then the next video I put out another one after that um, I had no ideas um, so I was it was called a lock-in for the damned yeah sort song. of a combination of like um animation and quote quoted yeah. bits with art and then also it looks initially I thought this is old an old film mm. footage but as I went through the video it occurred to me that actually I'm not I, I actually can't tell did you did you shoot it or is it from an old like horror film from the I 50s? wish we did shoot that um, and I, I, and I did question whether or not it was because it looked almost too well edited. perfect yeah oh, wow. to Thank have you. been you I know. edited that. <laughs> uh, um, no, I took a, a movie called Svengali. Okay. Svengali is, I'm absolutely obsessed with... Um, he was one of your songs as well, yeah, was he? he yeah, the characters, okay. I'm absolutely obsessed with Victoriana. And um, Svengali was the um, protagonist in the, the world's first best-selling novel, and that was called Trilby. And it was by George de Maurier, who was Daphne de Maurier's grandfather. Fabulous. And he and he wrote this book in the 1890s, and I think it was 
1895 it came out, an instant bestseller all over the world. And it's kind of forgotten about because, um, uh, just because culture changes all the time, but one aspect of the Trilby mania, as it was called at the time, I mean, there was... There was uh, musicals about it. There was ice cream in the shape of Trilby's foot because actually the girl in the book, I should explain, is called Trilby O'Farrell and okay. she was uh, an Irish singer living in Paris and she had an average voice. And then when Svengali, the mesmerist, put her under his spell, she sang amazingly well. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, Svengali, that's where the word Svengali comes from, from this novel. Um, he was actually a character. He was sort of like a... I think he's described as, um, uh, what's the word? He's a Jewish guy from the East. Um, it's kind of anti-Semitic parts of it, like most stuff in the Victorian era. Uh, There's yeah. elements of that because he's a body and he's Jewish. Um, but uh, so this idea of the Svengali and the, the, you know, under the spell, I've always liked this idea. And I love the fact that that was, you know, um, the first best-selling novel. And oh, um, actually, I should mention that um, The Trilby Hat came from that book. Yeah, I was, was going to so ask. So she was, yeah. Um, yeah. So... I wonder how many books you had to sell in 1895 to be a bestseller in the world. 1895. 1895. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it's like it sold... I don't know. Let's say a million copies were in the world. Okay, yeah. Um, but, yeah. And all of that mania has been forgotten about. But Trilby is... Or sorry, Svengali's one, one of these characters or books that I've always liked. And I um, incorporated him... The actual movie that I chopped up for mm -hmm. the video is from a movie called Svengali, and it's from 1931. Okay. And so it was a silent film. It was a silent yeah. movie. And so I... That's what I love about YouTube. I downloaded this thing mm -hmm. and I checked. I My former girlfriend, Claire, who I'm still in very good terms with, she is actually a copyright lawyer, patent oh, and copyright lawyer yeah. in Brighton. So I um, contacted her and I said, listen, can I use this movie? And she went, absolutely, it's pre some other... Yeah, there's some date yeah. that we all have to supposed yeah. to know. And she yeah. said, you can use it, of course. So then I chopped that up. Um, and a friend of mine who is uh, an illustrator called Orna Cunningham, mm. she's, a, she's from South Dublin, she painted this amazing uh, uh, painting of, um, this, I don't know how to describe it. Unless yeah, it's you a bit saw like it. the screen. Yeah, with these f flaming crown eyes. And the, the eyes, the flames in her eyes remind me of the crown in the crown bar in Belfast when you look at the tinted glass and the, the crown it's sort of like that so I took those two ideas and I put them together and I elongated the image and then I put my lyrics I, I wrote hand wrote out the lyrics each side of it and then sort of added them all in yeah um, and then also Miles O'Reilly and I went to Belfast a few years back to film certain things and he, he did some video footage of me and my friend Dawn in the crown bar and then I incorporated that slight you know i think it's only a minute long i spliced that into the video as well so it's a mixture of old movie animation and real life sort of ethereal footage that, that miles did i mean it's it cost absolutely zero money yeah um i think it worked out well it did you know, definitely yeah absolutely so you mentioned belfast there which is uh where you're from mm. so if we go back to growing up oh god right in west belfast yes and uh, just your early memories of creativity, I suppose, but in, in the frame of, like, when do you remember realising that that was something you wanted to do, I suppose? Or, or did you, were you like one of many guitar playing young fellas? Was it just what you did or were you separate from the pack? Or how did you sort of um, come to, to know that you were a creative bloke? Um, well, my first off, my dad is a painter. Um, he's a, he's an artist, and he doesn't paint anymore because he's just sort of given up. He's weirdly taken up drinking instead of, <laughs> instead of painting. He thinks he's Francis Bacon, but anyway, um, he doesn't paint anymore. But he used to paint, and basically, he was a working class. Um, well, he is a working class man who got too ill to work on the built sites anymore. So he took up painting and all these people in West Belfast used to bring him photographs of streets that were no longer there, that were knocked down. Okay. And then my dad would bring these to life mm -hmm. in um, glorious Technicolor and oils and 
he sold hundreds of these things. You know, Amazing. the the buzz went around the town. Everybody who who's you know grew up in these lovely areas, these old fashioned Lower Falls streets, mm-hmm. but like around here, I guess, and you know, yeah, um, no longer existed. My dad was able to take a photograph, bring it to life, and give it to these people. And um, you can buy postcards of his stuff, and you know, prints in Belfast. Amazing. What's his name? His name is John Burns. John Burns. Um, weirdly, there's not much of his stuff on the internet because he's he's like um, very anti-internet yes, because he antique got antique shops and the like. Maybe would you no, find them there? Well, no, you get them in like local art galleries, or you know, he got stitched up a couple of times by um, by people who took his stuff. You know, were printing off his work and selling it, and not giving them uh, any yeah, commission, course, all that yeah. sort of stuff. And he yeah. was he kind of like. You know, was against all that, um, but so the the artist, the artistic thing was kind of in my family, and I I um, I from a very young age was always I grew up in this horrendous housing estate. It was kind of like Dolphin's Barn mm-hmm. with the troubles in Belfast, like in the eighties, was <laughs> horrendous, and like it was part of my defense mechanism. I sort of became a punk very, okay. when I was a fourteen year old. I was yeah. like. Um, very anti-sectarianism, and I totally subscribe to this anarchy yeah, idea, yeah. and you know, as you do when you're young and having the clue. But anyway, um, so as a consequence, I used to start making, uh, I used to make bondage trousers and clash jeans, and I used to make a lot of, so I'm still pretty handy with a needle and thread. Amazing. So I used to make a lot of clothes for myself and friends, and, and then we started bands, and I was always in punk bands. I started off as a drummer, actually, okay. in a band called Liar. And could you play the drums or the guitar, or did you yeah. sort of just thrash it out until you got good? Well, I wasn't a very good drummer because I was kind of skinny and... Uh, and you need to be able, especially when you're playing hardcore punk. Can you not be skinny and be a drummer? Yeah, well, I was kind of skinny and not really strong because (laughs) you have to be able to play hardcore punk rock on drums for like 40 minutes, which is, you have to be exceptionally fit. And I was not exceptionally fit. I was was kind of like, um, I was fit for running around, but just that arms thing, Mm -hmm. that pace, I found it difficult. So I remember people in bands used to be turning around to me and going, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> speed up again. I was like, I'm knackered. <laughs> but so I kind of took to the guitar instead and uh, that was much easier. Okay. And I actually, I actually ended up singing in a band without any guitar. So I was the front man of a couple of bands and we did pretty well. So were you all like eyeliner and leather trousers? Or? No, more like, um, kind of like we were into sort of Joy Division and... Um, Kind of, I suppose the cure, but we weren't really into the leather trousers. It was more sort of like black clothes. We were really into the velvet underground. We all thought we were Lou Reed or, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was big into the Stranglers and another band called the Monochrome Set. So it was sort of a mix between all these things. And we used to play. It was really interesting playing Belfast back then because, um, you know, the troubles were on the streets. So you'd, I remember being attacked by a loyalist mob and we were trying to get like an amp through a turnstile to get away from them. It was just horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> so there was like no setting up for a gig is, is a stressful experience. Yeah, I used to get stopped by doing it. Yeah, used to get stopped by the soldiers. They'd make you empty all the gear out and search mm-hmm. through and pat you down, and then you put all the gear back in again, and you drive up the road, and then another foot patrol would stop you and do exactly okay. the same, just to wind you up. And it was part of the game. Yeah, um, but it was kind of interesting. So I was always involved in music, and I did the artwork for all the um, posters and um, sort of. So I was always sort of... And did you do that because you wanted to? Or did you do it because there was no one to ask? Or was it like, uh, this needs to be done, so I'm going to do it? Or did well, you yeah, choose I was, I was to... kind of, I was kind of like the... I used to get annoyed with the other band members because they never really wanted it as much as I did. I used to make the posters and organise the, re- the rehearsals and organise the gigs and yeah. do well, everything. There's, there's always one of them for every band. Yeah. It? yeah. The it's... admin man. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of always been something I've I've, I've done, but uh, over the years, you know, I, uh, um, it's kind of unsustainable because you can't make a living uh, playing music unless um, you know you're really, you know, like some of the people that I've dragged into my recent um, escapades. Mm-hmm. They're good enough to make a living. I wasn't, and that's not false modesty. It's it's always been sort of like a it's very niche the sort of music I play, and I'm aware of that. And uh, but it keeps me. It's good for my mental health, I think. <laughs> it keeps me taking over. Mindful musician. Yeah. Backwards to go forwards, a documentary you were involved with. Tell us about that. 
Oh yeah, that was a documentary made by the video maker Miles O'Reilly. He's um, he's made loads of sort of short movies and music videos, uh, live music videos of various acts in, in around Ireland. He has an amazing eye and he's a real artist. And he made this show called Backwards to Go Forwards, and it's exploring um, modern traditional music, traditional music, traditional music in Ireland. Um, so he asked me to interview some some acts. Uh, um, in various parts, we he made the the show over a year. So we started off. I interviewed this is how we fly in um, uh, Phoenix Park, and then we had to go up to Leitrim. Cormac Begley, who's an amazing accordion player, um, uh, I interviewed him as well, and uh, some Shano singers in Bray, and, and it's just beautiful. It's up online at the minute, and if people go to arbitusyarns.net, which is Miles' website, they'll be able to um, see this show. Okay, amazing. Sounds fab. Um, okay, so uh, I met you for lunch recently enough, and we mm. were chatting about something you've been writing recently. Mm. Is that something you're able to talk about at the moment? Yeah. Yeah? It's basically... Uh, I, I've been a journalist for 20 years. I After... Um, we were talking about the band thing. After that, I, I went to college in, in England and I studied journalism. And um, I worked in local newspapers and then worked went to Fleet Street and I worked for all the sort of big, wow. the big newspapers. I worked for, um, you know, Times, uh, Sunday Times, Culture Magazine. And then came to Ireland and I worked for the, the Irish News of the World. I was music editor there. And so, and, and the Irish Sun. I've always been writing about music, um, so I decided recently to uh, have a go at writing a novel. So I, I kind of wrote a novel, and it wasn't—I never really got it up to scratch. But a friend of mine who's in the movie industry, he read it and he um, said to me, "We should write this as a script." Mm-hmm. So we have done so. We wrote it as a script first of all in a movie, mm-hmm. and then um, he gave it to someone who's very well known in the music in the movie industry and he read it and he really liked it and he said well this would work better as four one-hour episodes so we did that and um, I was working at the time in a newsroom from three o'clock as a sub-editor from three o'clock to ten o'clock every night Mm -hmm. and Johnny Shaw um, who's my co-writer he was really he wasn't filming for January or February this year Um, and he was kind of like okay we're going to write this. And he was showing up at my house at 10 o'clock in the morning with croissants and going, come on, let's go. And I was like, not used to being up at that time and wasn't very happy about it at all. But he really pushed me and we uh, managed to get this way of writing where I would pretty much stand up and act out all the scenes and he would be laughing and writing it down. And afterwards I would go in and sort of fiddle around with it. But he was really good because... Um, not only was he banging it out, he was able to say, well, look, you know, we haven't heard from this because he's he, he works in movies every day or television. He's able to say, well, we haven't seen this character for, you know, yeah. a while, so we need to put that in there. And we need to... So he's really good at chopping up and driving the story. So he took my story and he lifted it to a, a, new, a new plane. So basically we have now written this as a four-piece and we have people involved... Well, people who are actually involved in... TV shows that exist and we've had meetings with them and they want to develop it or you know so Fun. nothing really has happened so far mm-hmm. but I kind of was away on holiday there for a while and I came back and I read the scripts I sat down and I, I read them in a really sort of subjective way and I thought and I I put them down and I thought this for the first time in my life I actually thought you know that is something that, that, is, that is really good and could and I could see it happen I can see it being made um um, so I'm very uh, confident that it will be made. When it will be made is another thing. Yeah, well, it is a long road, the old yeah. writing for yeah. TV or films or anything. Yeah. Do you have a- so it's basically about that estate that I just told you about. It's about, yes, it's about, all, the, yeah, it's about all the head, the balls I knew growing up. And um, it's about a family. It's kind of self, you know, semi-autobiographical. And it's really about the women. It's more about the women of the estate Isn't than anything everything? else. Yes. <laughs> Because when the men were off drinking the dough money or getting involved in yeah, para- we pa- paramilitarism, yeah. they were they were holding everything together. Yeah. And the the main characters kind of based on my mother and my aunts, and the, and they were all sort of these strong women who helped out the community. You know, writing letters to the dough for people, and giving people food whose husband drank all the money, and doing their hair for them. You know, just and 
we got this report back from uh, Northern Ireland Film Foundation on the movie and they really liked this um, dynamic of the women running the show. So, um, and I've, I, I come from a very matriarchal family, you know, I've got a lot of sisters and a lot of nieces and a lot of aunts and, a lot, and you know, mm-hmm. grannies and all that. And I've just taken everything they ever said to me and I've thrown it all into the script and it seems to, seems to have worked. So, Yeah. Uh, a great approach and if uh, have you seen Chernobyl have you watched any of Chernobyl I haven't Chernobyl? seen that yet I hear okay, it's really well, good I think the, it's all, the next five years is all about the miniseries based on Chernobyl it's amazing mm. you should totally totally give it a watch um, so when you think back to uh, when you were younger and thinking about your future mm. is it dramatically different now to what you thought it would be like is it did you did you ever sort of think like oh well you know mess around in bands but I'll go to college and do like accounting and no, then I get had a real no, job or whatever, I had no you know? idea my parents are very my mum wanted me to join the civil service and to get married and have a semi-detached house and you know because that's she was from working class Catholic West Belfast and you didn't have any people don't really understand that you didn't have any opportunities back then you know in the 60s my parents what they could achieve were, was very limited because of a, of the sort of sectarian culture. Yeah, and they lived. achieved it. What they could achieve, they yeah. could achieve. Yeah. So my mum wasn't the best. She's. I mean, I I I get on really well with her still to this day. But she was never really didn't really teach me aspirational things. You know, the way that other when I grew up and went to college. You mm. know, I met, met all these people whose parents were going, "You've got to do this and you got to do that." And my parents were never like that. They were always like, you know. Be realistic. Be realistic. Get a on. job. Couple yeah, on. Yeah. You know, type of thing. Um, and I actually, to, to get ha- just to get heavy about it, I actually didn't think I'd be alive. Um, I, when I was fourteen, I always thought I'd be dead by the time I was twenty-one. When I was sixteen, I thought, oh, maybe I'll make it to twenty-five. Yeah. I actually thought about that simply because the uh, child mortality rate where I lived was enormous. I mean, there was kids yeah. always getting falling off roofs or getting yeah. crushed by whatever, and or getting shot, or you know, it was mm-hmm. serious, and it was like. Um, quite traumatic, um, and I and, and as a weird, I, I always had this weird mortality problem <laughs> attitude to it. But I somehow made it through <laughs> and went off Is to that England. Where you go out all night and stay, stay out drinking yeah, all night. I somehow made it to England and I actually went to France first. That was my savior. I, I went off. Okay. I met a French girl and we hit just the, after school, like after school, okay. and we hit the France together. And um, then I saw a different world when I got there, and then. Met, then we split up and then I met an English girl and we moved back to England and she was very again f- pushing me to do something yeah. so it was about the women saying you've got you've got to and try so what f- were what were you doing when she was when she was pushing you into to college was it yeah um, I was what, a, what were you doing I was playing a, a, a punk band in Brighton okay and we were terrible and uh, I was playing bass and drinking a lot yeah basically <laughs> so she was kind of right to go this isn't gonna wash you know yeah yeah but like your friends it's not gonna wash mm, very good so you went to college in brighton mm. and studied journal- journalism yeah and was yeah. it a long course or a short course no it was you know three years, three years. and i actually before i did that i did a short radio course and uh city and gills journalism to, to see if i kind of liked it and i did but um yeah and right away um there was two jobs every year that went to on the local the local newspaper in Brighton's called the Brighton Evening Argus and uh, they gave two jobs to two graduates every year and I was lucky enough to get in there wow. right away and then I moved to the Hertfordshire Mercury which was a weekly newspaper in a part of England where nothing happens it's like so what were you writing about golden wedding anniversaries and um, women's institute meetings and uh, council planning applications wow uh, it was grounding in journalism because basically the idea was if you can make that sing when the good stuff comes along, <laughs> yeah. then it's going to write itself. So, uh, did, it, did any amazing stories present themselves suddenly? Well, the, well, there was a couple of things that I I think I was always like uh, looking for the light-hearted tale because in Hertfordshire there is um, there is actually a village called Ugly, oh. and there's another other village called Nasty, and I said to the local vicar, if you can find there's actually an ugly, there's a, it's called a Women's Institute of Ugly. It's, it's a women's nice. institute. And then I said to them, if you can find an ugly man who's going to marry a nasty woman, yeah. could you please tell me? Because <laughs> we, we could sell this to the, the tabloids. And he was, 
completely humorless and didn't want to know. Uh. So, so, um, so my my sense of a story was always there, mm. even in the midst of East Hertfordshire. So how long did you last in East Hertfordshire? I actually got, I left after, a, it was, that was 1998. Um, I, I was there about 18 months. I actually had a massive row with the editor and he said to me, um, he actually asked me how much money it would take for me to go away. <laughs> so like, 10,000. So, so, um, so I took some money and went to London and, and right. got a job at Teletext. Do you remember that? Teletext? Oh, I do. I yeah, yeah. So there. many people used to work in Teletext. My mum and her sisters all at some point, well, not my mum actually, but her sisters, um, worked in Teletext or Airtel, depending yeah. on which country you were in. Yeah, Teletext was kind of like the, the English one. It was Channel 4 and ITV. So were you doing like... Um, Competitions, holiday competitions, no, no, big X, the no, big X. On I, I the was screen. actually writing about in order to get their in order to get their uh, license, they had to write about other things as well. So I started off writing about the environment and education, which I found incredibly dull because I was basically stealing the stories. Mm-hmm. I'd open up a broadsheet newspaper in the morning and I'd steal a story, rewrite, yeah. rewrite the intro and stick it up. And then uh, they started the music column, and I got a job writing about music on there. So. That opened up a whole world for me. All of a sudden, I realised that you get into gigs free and you get free CDs yeah. and free vinyl, and you all you have to do is write about. It. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do more of this. So. And did writing always come like quite easily to you. Or yeah, was it, it, was, it was the only like thing I was to... good at school at, at English. Okay. I was just naturally good. I was terrible at maths, terrible at physics, but I was always good at English. Um, so it was kind of it kind of helps. Does certainly. Um, I don't think I've met a journalist yet who wasn't like naturally a good writer from when they were young you know well I've done a lot of sub sub editing in various newspapers and I can tell you lots of journalists are (laughs) not good writers they can't string a sentence together you have to phone up and say you know that story you you wrote and you handed in yeah Yeah. what does it mean (laughs) and then they tell me down the phone and then I rewrite it so what do you see on you know it's all you no it's not all me (laughs) but very often I'd say 25% of the time you have to rewrite from top to tail okay Uh, wow but it depends on the publication. Yeah. Like I, I'm sure, I don't want to diss journalists in general because it'd be strung up, but lots of the people, you don't even need to do that. Lots of journalists, you get the stuff and you you know, you know maybe have to correct the audit because everybody makes typos. Yeah, or there'd be like a comma where there should be. Yeah, and, 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 for, and I always find that the better the writer, the, the more uh, susceptible they were for you to phone up and say to them, look, you know this story you've written here? Hmm. I remember one time when I was at the Times, I was I was one of the eminent columnists there that he wrote this huge piece and it was brilliantly written. But the end just sort of was like, really, you know, and it's sort of petered off into nothing. Yeah. I think it's called bathos, that is when something starts off well and peters out. So I phoned him up and I said, look, this feature's really good, but it, it, you know, ends really abruptly and it's kind of like, after all that effort, it seems a shame. And he went, well, what do you suggest? And I went, well... What about this? And he went, great, do that. And he, you know, he was very nice about it. Yeah. Whereas other people you phone up and they're, you know, maybe not as confident in their own abilities and they immediately go on the aggression back yeah. foot. So it, it depends who you get really in, you know. Every Everybody's different. There's lots, it's like anything in life. There's good ones and there's bad ones. Yes, of course. Did you find, was there a big difference between working in on Fleet Street in London and coming to Dublin then to work in newspapers? Was it a uh, different buzz or was it? Well, not really. I thought, that, I mean, it was very, I was surprised at the times because there was lots and lots of um, very liberal left wing people working in a kind of a mainstream uh, you know, establishment newspaper. Yeah. I mean, there was there was a guy on the the back bench. He was pretty much a Trotskyite. He was totally old school labour, you know, kick over the statues, commie, and yeah. he was working there. Um, and they were all very polite and nice, and and lots of them were very apologetic, weirdly, about the British behaviour in Ireland over like a couple of centuries. Really? I had people apologise to me all the time wow. in the canteen. I was like, well, it's nothing to do with you, but they were they they <laughs> <That's> <laughs> they kind of they kind of have a chip on their shoulder about it, especially the liber- the more liberal journalists. They're they're mortified about the British behaviour in Ireland. Okay, interesting, because uh, like a lot of people would. I went to college in England and lived with three um just for one year in Wolverhampton lived with three uh English ladies and um they didn't know anything about anything Mm. you know history wise they had no idea and obviously I'm not coming from Mm. the north of Ireland so I I I also have no idea comparatively Mm. but 
um, it seemed uh, very sort of normal for um, English people to just not really know that much about about yeah. what happened. I mean, they're protected from it, I guess. They don't learn about that in school. The reporting might be... I guess I know, was surrounded by a bunch of like well-educated liberals. Exactly, you're reading the paper all the time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who, who were informed about history and... Um, they were kind of mortified, as I said, but it was kind of interesting. And um, and then did you have any of that when you got to Dublin? Was anybody like, oh, careful now, don't say the wrong thing, because... Uh, well, in, in Dublin, um, there isn't a day goes by in a newsroom when somebody doesn't do my accent back to, back at me. Okay. <laughs> doesn't say 99 or yeah. 8. Community. Or oh, that, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you know, I, it's kind of like... Um, I don't take it thick because it's kind of a f- it's kind of an affectionate slagging type thing yeah. all the time, but it's kind of weird when it happens every day. You know, yeah, when you're, yeah. you're talking to someone and they just start repeating your accent back to you. I it's personally kind of- <laughs> have never had that experience, <laughs> but I'm not sure how it's I would kind cope of a daily occurrence, yeah. honestly. Wow, but an affectionate one, I suppose. Yeah, and there's the, the dubs have. I mean, they have a, the, people in the Republic kind of have a, a weird relationship with the North anyway, and yeah. They, you know, when especially when Nordies start shouting as they, they kind of recoil and when my friends came over to our house, he would purposely walk around shouting, "There'll be no shouting in my eyes," <laughs> and just so he could say "shouting," obviously, yeah. and make the middle class children laugh. <laughs> and so far from that, <clears throat> no shouting in my eyes. Um, but yeah, does it get a bit scared? People get a bit scared. <laughs> they do. It's funny. And not so much nowadays because the troubles are 25 years over. But I remember being in Bray one year um, in the 80s and me and my mate was, were, on, were on the beach. We were eating chips and these hard men come running up to us like they were obviously going to take our chips over. And, and as soon as we heard our accents, they actually skedaddled. They did a <laughs> and ran away. And I was like, ah, oh, at times the Nordy accent's useful. But these days, it doesn't have the same perceived threat as it did, especially, the, you know, those hordes of young kids on bikes yeah. who would terrorise you around Dublin. Yes, they don't yeah. care where you're from. No, they really don't <laughs> at all. Uh, and uh, do you find uh, hordes of young kids on bikes in Dublin? Uh, Terrifying, yes, yeah, I yeah. do. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you remember, one time we were, uh, they stole my bike, Jack. Oh, your bike got stolen so Martin used to his, the office Martin used to work in was across the road from the bakery that I used to work in mm. um, so I used to make your your lovely strong Americanos yeah and one day I was standing in um, in your bakery and I looked out the window and there was a kid with a bolt cutters cutting yeah. the thing off my bike and I legged it across the road and grabbed the bike and they, they were completely I mean I didn't say anything to them I just grabbed my bike and stood my mm-hmm. bike. My, uh, Someone plate. saved my bike as well, who I think uh, a neighbour, like one of the cafes next door or something, mm. one of the bloke who worked there, ran across the road. I didn't even notice. It was right opposite me. I was looking at it. <laughs> I didn't notice the guys trying to steal. It was a very bike theft, yeah. high level area, that uh, Kevin Street. <laughs> and they get those 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 gangs of kids are completely fearless. So you, you don't say anything to them. You just hold on to your bike and hope they go away. <laughs> That's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. Uh, hope you can cycle faster than they can run. Mm. Yeah. And so through your sort of creative journey, Mm. what would you say is the thing that you like would never give up? If you had to go to a desert island and take one creativity thing with you, what would it be? This is like desert island. So I'm allowed the Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare. No, you can't bring the Bible. You're not allowed that. (laughs) I know, but that's what they have have (laughs) on that. Not that I would want a Bible. No. Um, But like, is it playing, is it guitar playing or is it singing or is it writing? Or like, if if you had to lose the power to do the other things which which is the one thing that you just couldn't let go of probably the writing i mean the music for me is a hobby okay you know uh, always has been well it wasn't when i was 18 when i was 18 i wanted to be a rock star like everybody else you yeah, know we all course. thought we were in bands and we were in bands and we were arrogant and drunk and and then the realization comes to you in your 20s that you're, that's not going to happen for you mm-hmm. um so the writing is important to me because um it's not so much the writing. I, I just love research. I love reference books and Wikipedia and delving into the the preparation for writing. Is is, is and the do you find then since you when you started studying journalism, I presume the internet was in its infancy at that stage. Yeah. What? How did they? What sort of research techniques did they teach you? How were you? Because I mean, I remember I'm old enough to have mm. started 
with the golden pages and mm. well yeah. newsrooms used to have like the cuttings room it used to have like you would there would be someone who would say go, come, you'd give a name mm-hmm. you'd write down the name of the person you're writing about or the and they would go off there'd be a file somewhere and they'd have cuttings from previous things and it'd be a physical pile with cuttings inside it which you would then read now, obviously okay. these days you don't need that because they're all on online yeah. online and um there's you know online uh, resources for all that stuff it's, um but I, I I kind of started when that was just ending. I kind of remember it slightly, just because of the local newspaper I worked on. It was like, I may as, it may as well have been the 1860s, that newspaper yeah. <laughs> in Hertfordshire, because it was like, you know, I, I can remember, it wasn't quite typewriters, but it was the first computers. And it was like, I was very much a one-fingered, two-fingered yes. typer, you know. Yeah. And I remember... My first day in the job, I hadn't been typing that much, and I was like, the the, the editor was looking at me, and I was trying to find Q, <laughs> and he was like, "What have we hired here?" Because I obviously could talk my way into yeah. the job, but because um, that's part of part of being journalist is being being able to, you know, talk get on your, with people, yeah, you no, know, talk your way into anywhere, you know, mm. tell lies well, because m- m- a lot of journalism is sort of bent in the truth, yeah. as everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know now. Yeah. Um. My uncle, great uncle, used to be a um, typeface setter mm. in uh, originally on Fleet Street, and then they outsourced all the printing of newspapers to Manchester, up near oh, Manchester yeah. somewhere. Yeah, so he worked, he worked as that. And I've always been like, I did one of my like special topic leaving cert history subjects on the printing press, and so the whole sort of notion of newspapers and printing and typeface and all of that has always been, like, it just makes me sort of giddy. Was he a very wealthy man? Because they were extremely well-paid, those guys. Uh, I'm sure he was well-paid, but uh, I'm not sure how wealthy he was. I mean, he certainly was the sort of bloke who had a suit on and a roll of money mm. in his breast pocket, all right. Mm. But he also drank a lot. So. Well, that's that went with it. The old school was, like, you did two things. You earned a lot and you spent and a lot. You drank a lot. And you <laughs> get, they were always gambling as well. Oh, they were always running yeah. around the bookies and drinking. And it was just like... Yeah. And I don't, I don't know much, but I know his, his, his wife threw him out when the kids were young. And these were Irish Catholic people now, mm. so it must have been pretty bad for her to actually make him leave the house. Um, but he was always... A, he was a lovely great uncle, but... Uh, I don't, I don't know, apart from knowing that. And you know when you're little and you find something out like that, I suppose you don't really think about the detail. Mm. And then when you're older, you realise you actually, you've no idea. Mm. And that's probably, probably better off, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a whole area that I, I love. And I do feel like it's a bit, um, the magic, I suppose, of journalism now, the all computers and emailing and researching. Well, it's is, kind of, a, it's a dying it's a dying trade, really, because mm. newspapers have nosedived in, in circulation and, and sales. I mean, when I came to Dublin um, 10 years ago, most newspapers were selling double what they're selling now. Yeah. And as a consequence, um, lots of newspapers are letting people go in the last couple of years. Um, they're working on skeleton staff and online is 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 obviously where it's at. But, but the problem is that online... Uh, papers or news sources don't really pay properly. Yeah, they don't like a lot of news articles are often just screen grabs of Twitter yeah. conversations. Yeah, and they don't pay a living wage, so um, it's difficult to make a living as 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 a journalist, especially um, if it's more online. And also, advertising is where the cash is to to run, the, drive the paper, and yeah. advertising revenues have plummeted as well. Mm. And advertising on the internet is not as expensive as in in the physical paper, print, so yeah, so yeah. it's it's uh, it's all. I mean, we're we're in an area now where I think it's trying to work itself out. Maybe in twenty years' time, there'll be a way of working as a journalist and to earn uh, a living. Um, but at the minute, it's not really uh, possible on the internet. Yeah, um, unless you're a named writer, or you know, people want to. You have a following of your own, and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, if you were. Uh, 18 again now mm. and you were filling out your CAO or you were sitting outside that college in Brighton mm. um, what do you think you would choose to do? Is it likely that you would pick journalism even even knowing what we know about the internet and newspaper sales and everything? Or Absolutely I, I've, been, I've been extremely lucky and I feel real gratitude for um, the times that I've had in papers and the kindness with which, I mean we all 
have had good jobs and bad jobs, but in general, I'd say that um, I've had a very positive experience. And I always promised myself when I was, um, after a couple of bad experiences at the start, that I would never again be putting on my tie in the morning or getting ready to go into somewhere where I hated. If I hated the place, I would rather starve. And okay. and I, I sort of kind of stuck by that. But I was very fortunate because people in general in, in, in the media are good to work with. They don't want, you know, there's always a, some headbanger in an office that, mm, you can, mm. that nobody gets on with. But in general, people are, people are nice. Yes. And, it's a, like a, it's got a good, uh, just a good buzz off it, really. Mm. It's a bit like working on backstage anywhere or something, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. But would you choose to do it again now? If you, if you, if you were 18 now, would you choose it? Probably. Or do you think you'd do something else? I don't know. Or would you be like a blogger and then you'd go that way, you know? I don't know. I mean, bloggers, I don't really think that I'm, I'd have that much I'd, to say. Bloggers, you, you need to want, you need to have an opinion, first of all, an opinion that you think other people want to hear. And I don't want to inflict my opinions on anybody. <laughs> I tend to stay away from that sort of stuff. Um, so I don't, is there anything that you ever wanted to do that you haven't done yet? Like become a photographer, for example, or whatever? Well, I haven't made a, I haven't made a movie. I think I'd quite like to make a movie. Or a, and would a, you be the director of that no, film? Or? No, I'd leave that to people with. Um, so you'd be like the writer and consultant. Maybe <laughs> maybe the writer or. Um, I almost kind of like the idea of cinematography. Okay. Um, but I know lots of people who do that really well. So. Um, yeah, yeah. It's hard. It's hard to feel like there's. Um, you can never catch up. I suppose. Mm. And what about acting? Have you ever wanted to be an actor? Not really. I, I, but are uh, you good at it though? My mum used to tell me when I was lying to her as a child that I was a better actor than James Mason. Amazing. So <laughs> she knew I was lying, but she that said that was some performance. <laughs> that was congratulations on that performance. I would be mortified. So that was it. I remember one time swearing to the holy picture. My mum was is a great woman for the novenas and the, and I I can't remember what I did, but I lied through my teeth and she went swear to that holy picture that <laughs> that you didn't do that and I I swore to the holy picture and of course and of course I was exposed oh. and then was doubly punished because of not only for the the crime but imagine swearing to holy picture <laughs> is there something wrong with your head. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to have to meet your mum. She sounds fabulous. Um, well, Martin, it's been lovely to talk to you. And you. Thanks for coming. I'm not quite sure how um, illuminating it was. but Oh, um, ever, ever, it's all illuminating. <clears throat> um, if people, or, or Do you have a Facebook page that people can follow? No. Okay. <laughs> do you want any attention in any way from this experience? No. Okay, don't follow Martin. He's not interested. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming. It was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Creation Arcade. Please subscribe and follow. Our Instagram handle is at creationarcadepod. This podcast is presented by me, Harriet. Recorded and edited by Conan Brophy. Sponsored by createsound.ie, mobile podcast producers. Mm-hmm.